Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we heard from Pastor Chris as we finished our study through the book of Ephesians. This week, we're going to hear from Pastor Brian as we take a look at Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 31 in our transition week. Now, with all that said and done, let's go ahead and dive into this week's message with Pastor Brian. All right, if you guys would turn, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 12. Uh, we're going to be reading out of a passage in there today. I mean, today's a little different. Usually we go through series. We just ended our series in the book of Ephesians. And so today's a one-off message, and I got to uh, choose the topic. And so the topic I chose today is Christian maturity. Um, so for this, we're going to be in Mark chapter 12, reading from verse 28 to 31. And we're going to kind of use that as a jumping-off point to talk about Christian maturity. And I felt this topic was an important one because... Uh, the American church for quite a while has kind of moved away from maturing Christians, and they've been having a larger focus on just evangelism, and they, they have abandoned the discipleship side of Christianity. Um, and without getting too deep into the topic, I think this is because the predominant eschatological view, or the end times view, is that we're in the end times, Christ can return any day, so why bother preparing for the future, just prepare for today? And because of that, we've had generation after generation of Christians not discipling one another, just trying to spread the gospel, trying to get as many people into the door to have faith. But what that does is it leaves everyone as immature Christians. And then you have generations of immature Christians training up the next generation of immature Christians. And it's caused kind of a falling away in the United States of believers because the, the faith people have is not a strong faith. It's not a built up faith. People don't live out their obedience to Christ. They just have a faith and they've made it a personal thing. And so Christian maturity is something that God wants us to have. Um, we, we aren't just believers so that way we have a ticket to get into heaven. We're believers so that way we can be obedient to Christ on this earth. And so yes, we will one day go to heaven, but our salvation in Jesus Christ has three components to it. The first and the last component I think we're all familiar with. The first component is justification. And that's when Christ came and he redeemed us of our sins. We are now in his righteousness. We are no, no longer in our sins. And so we preach that to people. But then we skip sanctification, we go straight to glorification, which is one day we'll be glorified in heaven. And so many believers who have faith are immature in their faith because they only hold on to those two parts. I've been saved and I'm waiting for heaven. And so Christians, by and large in the United States, are lazy Christians. They're immature Christians because they don't focus on sanctification. And sanctification is a process that's going on right now. It's God making us holy because he is holy. Is God bringing us from one glory or one degree of glory to the next degree of glory? God wants to build us up in himself. God wants to bring us back to the garden. You see, Adam was created in the garden and he was created a mature man. We don't often think about uh, people in history as being mature. We oftentimes, because of our education, think of, of earlier men being less evolved than us or less thinking than us. But the reality is that God made Adam fully mature. He wasn't born a baby, he was born a full-grown man, and he walked with God, and he did what pleased God on the earth. And it wasn't till the fall that sin came in and corrupted that. So now for you and I, we are no longer mature at our birth. We are born in sin, and we are immature, and when we become Christians, we are immature Christians. And so what God wants to do with each one of us is he wants to bring us back to the garden. He wants to bring us back into that maturity. He wants to bring us back into walking with him. 
And so he, Christ has come and he's washed us clean of our sins, but he doesn't just leave us there. He matures us. He grows us. He strengthens us. The Bible tells us over and over again that, that God actually desires to build up your character. He puts you through trials and tribulations, not just so that you, you, where you experience horrible things, but he puts you through those things to build your character. He wants you to be made more and more in his image. And so that is what God is doing. He's bringing us back to the garden. He's bringing us back to the maturity that once was in Adam before the fall. And so you and I as Christians should be desiring this maturity. We should not be desiring to just simply remain immature Christians, but we should desire to become mature Christians. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at what what does maturity look like? Um, Why does God want us to be mature? How do we become mature? And how does that maturity work out in the world? And so let's go ahead and read, um, again, Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28. It says, One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, What commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now, when we read a passage like this, I think a lot of times what people do is they, they read it and they kind of bring in their understanding. And so we can read a passage like this, being in the world for many, many years, and we can have a definition of love that is not biblical. And so we can read this passage and think we're actually fulfilling this by bringing in our own definition of love. But what we actually need to do is we need to abandon our way of thinking and take on the scripture's way of thinking of what love is. And by doing this, by, by changing the way we think about this passage and scripture itself, by pulling the meaning out of the text rather than bringing in our meaning to the text, what we're going to do is we're going to be able to mature as Christians much better. Because an immature Christian will say they're fulfilling this by loving in the way the world loves. But the mature Christian is going to fulfill this by loving the way that God has told us to love. And so what is Christian maturity and how do we get to it? Well, simply put, Christian maturity is the practicing of our obedience to Christ. And I say practicing of obedience because we never fully arrive there. As Christians, we're never going to be perfect and sinless. Um, the book of Romans tells us that oftentimes we end up doing the things we do not want to do and we don't do the things that we want to do. It's going to be a constant struggle as we mature as Christians that we're never going to be all the way there and we can rely on God's grace in those moments. But scripture is clear that when we become Christians, we are like children, and children need to mature. Um, the book of Corinthians is a great example of Paul writing a letter to immature Christians, telling them to mature in their faith. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, he says this, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. And so when we are immature as Christians, we oftentimes are going to reflect childish behaviors in our Christianity. And so children oftentimes think simplistically, they're selfish, they don't know how to fully reason, and oftentimes they act without thinking. And the purpose of raising up the child is to do away with those behaviors so that way they become mature. And the same is true as a Christian. When we become believers, we are immature in our faith, and there's nothing wrong wrong with us being immature in our faith. The problem is, is with us staying immature in our faith. And so just like children, we need to be trained out of these things. We need to become mature. And oftentimes, if, you, if you're wondering, am I immature as a Christian? It's going to 
reflect in the way you think and reflect in the way you act. And oftentimes it'll reflect in the way you pray. So if you're a Christian and you're praying and your prayers are all about yourself, the odds are you're an immature Christian. If your, if your prayers are only for you to get out of tough situations, odds are that you're an immature Christian. The, our prayers should not be for us to get things that we desire, but for us to get what God desires for us. And so instead of praying, God, get me out of this situation, we can say, God, help me through this situation. God, I want to, why am I in this situation? We should have a desire to actually learn why we're going through the things we're going through. And so the immature Christian says, just get me out of this. I don't want any part of it. The mature Christian says, God, what am I learning in this? What am I getting out of this? What am I supposed to be growing in? Where's the sin that I'm supposed to be getting rid of? And so it's going to affect how you live your Christianity. And so one of the problems with being immature as Christians is that um, what Paul tells us is that you're constantly stuck on the milk of the word. And this is not something he wants us to do. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 1, he says this, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, but you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? And so what Paul is saying here is he's not telling them, you're not Christian because you're not living it the right way. He's saying, you guys are Christians, start acting like it. You guys are Christians, you should not still be only receiving the milk of the word. And the milk of the word is the basics of our salvation, is that you are justified in Christ. But oftentimes what an immature Christian will do is they're still living in their sin. They have not yet changed their life. They're still not living in obedience to God. So they have a faith, but their faith isn't working out in their life. And so oftentimes Christians like this will have a, what they call a personal faith. They'll say, well, my faith is for me and it's not for other people. But if God is true and what we believe about God is true, then it's not just true for us, it's true for everyone. And so we can't think of faith in Christ as something that's personal. Faith in Christ is an adherence to what is true. And so we need to tell other people about this adherence to what is true because it is true. Essentially what we're doing when we do this is we're living by lies. We're living according to lies that um, our faith is, that faith in God is something that is only personal to us. Now there is a personal aspect of our faith, but it's not to remain personal. And so our faith should work out in this world. And so what God has done is he's given to us tools to mature us. Um, one of those tools is the church and the other tool is his word. And both of these together are going to help mature us in our faith. In Colossians chapter one, verse 28 and 29, it says, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And so in this passage, we see that Christians are admonishing one another and teaching everyone in wisdom. And that is the the role of the church. That's the function of the church. We're not here to check off a box so we can get into heaven. We're here to learn from one another. We're here to grow with one another. We're here so that the mature Christians can preach and teach the immature Christians and raise them up to be mature for that next generation. Because the mature Christians aren't going to be around forever, so they need to raise up the next generation of mature Christians. And that's what the church is for. It's to raise up one another in Christ. And to do this properly, God has given to us his word. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17 says this, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. 
And so God has given to us, us his word. He's given to us his law. So that way we can see what is good. We can see what is right. We can see how we're meant to act in this world. And then he's given to us the church so that the body of believers can come together with one will, with one purpose to train up one another in righteousness. The great commission is to baptize and to teach people to follow God's law. It's not just baptize. It's not just come to faith so you can go to heaven. It's baptize and be discipled. And so you as a Christian should seek maturity. And the mature Christian should seek to bring up immature Christians into maturity. And so what does this maturity look like? Well, again, it's, it's the, uh, it is the discipline of ourselves to be obedient to Christ. And so there is maturity in the world, and then there's a Christian maturity. And the difference here is where you're oriented towards. So a, a Buddhist monk is going to be very disciplined. He is going to be very mature in his faith, but his faith is not going to be towards God. His faith is going to be towards his religion. And so he'll be, he'll reflect signs of maturity, but it won't be a Christian maturity. And so the difference between maturity and Christian maturity is the orientation of that maturity. And so for one, the mature Christian is going to have self-control. We're not going to be controlled by our sins. We're not going to be controlled by sinful desires. And that even goes for things that aren't necessarily sins in themselves. Um, one of the things that the Bible tells us is not to be gluttonous. And so the, the mature Christian is self-control where they can enjoy food, they can enjoy drink, but they don't do so in a gluttonous way because that's sinful. And the same goes for um, other desires that we have. Uh, food itself isn't bad. Drinks aren't bad. Entertainment's not bad. Sex isn't bad. But we can abuse these things to make them bad. We can use them in sinful ways. And so the mature Christian has self-control over these things to indulge in a godly way and not in a sinful way. The second thing that the Christian, uh, the mature Christian has is discipline. And so what discipline looks like, it's not punishment. I think a lot of times when people hear discipline, they think of disciplining children, you know, giving them spankings, things like that. But what discipline is, is your ability to follow God's law um, without being forced to do so. And so you're disciplined in God's law. You know it well. It comes to mind. And so when you're in situations, you follow God's law because you know it's the right thing to do. And so the mature Christian is self-controlled and disciplined into God's law. And lastly, the mature Christian is not easily offended. And this is for the point of the body coming together. The first two work well on your own, but this last one is for the building up of the body as a whole. Because if you're someone who's easily offended and I come to correct you, you're not going to receive that correction. If I come up to you and say, hey, you've been sinning in this way. You really shouldn't be doing this. We, we need to bring about a correction here. And you say, who are you to tell me this? Then you're not going to learn anything. It is immaturity to not be able to receive correction. And so the mature Christian is going to not be easily offended. That way you can be corrected. That way you can be reproved. That way you can be taught. Um, a sign of immaturity is a, a Christian who does not want to be taught. A sign of an immature Christian is a Christian who thinks they can do it all on their own. You can't. We have been given God's word and the church to build up one another. You need the body. You need God's word. We need one another to, one another to build up our faith. And so we see in Proverbs 27, 17, it says, iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. You cannot sharpen yourself. We need one another for this. Christian maturity is not gained on your own. It is gained as the body. And so that's what Christian maturity is. We're orienting ourselves to be mature in Christ, to focus on God's law, focus on God's word, to live out his ordinances, to live out his precepts and not our own. And so we can now go back to how we come to this. How is it that we, we mature? And it's going to start with loving God. 
and it's gonna continue in loving our neighbor. Because you see, when we love God in the correct way, what's going to happen is it's going to help us to mature. As so we can read again, starting at verse 29 in Mark chapter 12. It says, Jesus answered them, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. If you aren't familiar with this passage, this is coming coming out of the book of Deuteronomy. And this is known as the great Shema. And the reason for this is uh, the word Shema in Hebrew means here. And so it's known as the great Shema since the first word in this is here. And so um, Jews would say this to their kids. It's a common saying. They would say it over and over again. Hear, O Lord, or hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord. And that is the beginning of Christian maturity for all of us. If you want to be a mature Christian, you're going to have to orient yourself towards God. And so you have to know the God you serve. You see, people seek maturity in many ways, but if they aren't seeking God, they're going to be immature still. If you want to be a mature Christian, it has to start with God. And we serve the triune God. There are three persons, one being, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And this is the God who created all things and he is in control of all things. Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 26 says this, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And so God is the creator God, and that means everything comes from him. If you want to know Morality, morality starts with God. If you want to know thinking, thinking starts with God. If you want to know the difference between right and wrong, that starts with God. In every topic you can think of, it all starts with God because he's the one who created it. He created you, he created me, he gave to us the breath in our lungs. Everything in existence started with God. And so we must start with him. That is the milk of the word. Who God is, is that milk. We have to know who God is and then we can go on to the heavier topics then we can learn how to be obedient to this God. But it has to start with knowing him. And so we love this God, the creator God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this phrase um, isn't necessarily meant to be broken up. It's meant to express the totality of our love for God. Uh, but I want to go through each one of those words and kind of uh, differentiate uh, ways that this means that we love God. And so the first one we see is loving God with all of our heart. And this means us loving him with our desires. As Christians, we should have a desire for God. Outside of Christ, we have disordered desires or desires that are not pleasing to God. And what God is doing when he brings us to himself is he's reordering our desires so our desires are in line with his will. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verse 9 through 11. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. And so non-believers and even at times immature Christians can live in these ways. And this is because our desires are disordered. They're geared towards ourselves. And so um, if you read through that list, you'll notice each one of those things is something that people get personal satisfaction from. And that is the way our world lives. Our world says, whatever is pleasing to you, do it. 
Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Whatever feels good to you, do it. Whatever feels right to you, do it. And so the world wants to live in a way that is pleasing to themselves. How do I fulfill myself? And so the desires of your heart are going to be geared towards that self-pleasure. But in Christ, our desires are changed. He has washed us. He has sanctified us. He has made us new. And so our desires are going to be changed. We're no longer going to be doing things to please ourselves. We're going to be doing things to please God. God has given to us a new desire. And one of the uh, kind of uh, top um, moralities of the world today in, in regards to sex is consent. And so the idea of, of consent is that if two people consent to a sexual relationship, then it's good. And we can see how that is kind of an ultimate expression of this idea that whatever pleases you is good. Because you can have a married man and, an, and a woman on the side and both of them consent to the relationship and the world will have to say, well, that's okay because they both consent. But God has said something different. He has said that marriage is meant to, or sex is meant to be in the marriage bed. And so just because they consent doesn't mean it's good. Just because you feel good about it doesn't mean it's good. What has God actually said about the topic? And so that's an example of those disordered desires that are being reordered. Outside of Christ, your desires are what rule you. In Christ, your desires are changed to be what God wants you to do. And so you live according to what he has said instead. In Ezekiel chapter 36, starting at verse 25, he says this, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And so this is what God has done for the Christian because your order, your desires are disordered outside of Christ. And the reason they are being ordered is because God has given to you a new heart. God has given to you his spirit and he is putting his ordinances on your heart. So you're doing what God was pleasing to God and your desires themselves are now pleasing to God rather than displeasing to him. And so God wants to do this for you. He wants you to mature in this way. Um, loving God with your heart is just that. Your desires are now made new. And so the Christian who is mature is going to do this uh, more and more. So we no longer please ourselves, we please God, and we work towards his glorification. In Psalm 119, starting at verse 97, we see the psalmist talking about um, his desire for God's law. He says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever mine. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age because I have observed your precepts. I've restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. I have not turned aside from your ordinances, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. From your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. And this should be our heart. Our heart should be geared towards God's law. Um, the immature Christian reads God's word and oftentimes they're offended by parts of it. And rather than changing themselves, they say there's something wrong with God's word. And you'll see a lot more of the liberal churches today say, well, obviously God's word can't be inspired because it says things that go against what God would like. And it's really not against what God would like, it's against what they would like. So to justify themselves, they say it's not inspired. That should not be for, so for you and I as Christians. We need to read God's word and it should shape our understanding. Um, there's a pastor I like to listen to, and he talks about how when he was growing up, 
um, and his dad would take him to church. Sometimes they would sing hymns and his dad would not agree theologically with the hymn. And so he taught his family, when you get to the verse that we don't agree with theologically, just don't say that part and sing the rest of it. So you sing the parts you agree with and you don't sing the parts you disagree with. And then he became an adult and he became a pastor himself and he decided that his church was going to sing through the Psalms. And he found himself in certain Psalms not singing parts of the Psalms. And he thought, wait a minute, this is God's word. Why am I disagreeing with it? There's, there's something wrong with my thinking on the passage, not the passage itself. And so he had to teach himself that, oh, I have flaws in my thinking because I'm the one disagreeing with scripture. And that's how we need to think about it. We need to orient ourselves towards God's word. It's not God's word that needs to change. It's our thinking that needs to change. And so loving God with all of our heart is desiring what God has said. It's desiring his precepts. It's desiring his law and agreeing with it. We should not be ashamed of any word out of scripture because all of it is God-breathed and it is for our correction, is for our teaching, is for our training. And so that is the mature Christian, loving God with all their heart. Next, the mature Christian loves God with all their soul. Now, the concept of the soul is body and spirit coming together. And so um, I spoke a little bit in the, in the heart part about our physical side, so I'll focus a little more on the spiritual side in this section. So you and I are born dead in the spirit. But what we must realize is that this doesn't mean that we cannot explore spiritual things in our deadness, but the things we explore spiritually outside of Christ lead to death. So we can be spiritual, but that spiritual is still, spiritual experience is still deadly. So for you and I Christians, we are made alive in Christ. Ephesians chapter two, verse four through seven says this, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So we were once once spiritually dead and we have been made spiritually alive. And so the mature Christian has their fulfillment of spiritual things in Christ Jesus. We have Christ as our mediator and we have been given the Holy Spirit within us and that should be fulfilling for us. But the immature Christian or the non-Christian, what they're often going to do is they're going to seek spirituality in any way they can possibly think of. And so this is largely um, expressed uh, in modern times in the New Age movement, which is you get to cherry pick your religion. Um, since all ways are equally good, you can just kind of pick whichever spiritual experiences you like and you can make your own religion with it. And so you're, people, you might have heard people say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And that's what they mean. They're doing spiritual things without adherence to any specific religion. And so oftentimes what people will do, which is kind of funny, is you'll see people praying, but they don't know who they're praying to. And this is because there's a desire. There's this disconnect that they experience, but they don't know how to fill that disconnect. So they pray even if they don't know who they're praying to. Or maybe they're part of an actual religion and they'll pray to the gods of those religions. People will also do drugs. And the Bible tells us that this is sorcery, that there's actual real spiritual experiences in doing drugs. It's not just a physical thing. Um, again, a lot of times the education of the day teaches that we're material only and that the drug experience are just tricks of our mind and things aren't actually happening. But the Bible tells us that, no, these are real, actual spiritual experiences you're having on drugs. You're actually interacting with demonic presences. And so the Bible tells us to stay away from that. And so people do that. They'll go out and they'll practice um, all sorts of different um, witch practices and pagan practices, and they're, inter- they're interacting with things that are real spirits, but they are not God. 
And so what oftentimes happens, if you've ever heard anyone's testimony coming out of these things, they'll say it always starts off wonderful. And this is because uh, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. And so they'll experience these things and it's good for them in the first time. But then it's like a drug. It's good the first time and they can never recreate that first experience. And so they dive deeper and deeper and deeper into spiritual practices and it just leads into more depression, more demonic oppression, and it just becomes worse and worse and worse for them as they continue on. And the reason people do this is because we are body and spirit. And if we are spiritually dead, we are going to recognize that we are dead. We're going to seek after things. And for the immature Christian, oftentimes this doesn't go away. Oftentimes the immature Christian doesn't realize the fulfillment they have in Christ, that Christ is the one who fulfills you spiritually. And so they too will seek after spiritual things. I think this is more prevalent in more charismatic churches. But what you'll see is people just have a desire to see miracles and spiritual activity. And so rather than being um, comforted that, that we might see miracles, but it's going to be in God's timing, and that we might see spiritual things, but it's in God's timing, people seek it out as if that is what Christianity really is. Um, there, are, there are places that tell you if you don't experience spiritual things, then you're not actually saved. And that's not true. Because you have the Holy Spirit in you. You are experiencing spiritual things. You can actually talk to God through prayer. And so that's the fulfillment of the mature Christian. You are content with prayer. You are content with the connection you have with God. And maybe spiritual things happen and maybe miracles happen, but we're not looking for those for fulfillment. They're possibilities, but we don't seek them out just for the sake of seeking them out. And the Bible even warns about this with tongues. It says, don't just speak in tongues if there's no one to interpret it. The purpose of spiritual gifts is the edification of the church. And so we're not just to seek spirituality for the sake of spirituality. We're seeking it for the glorification of God. And so the mature Christian does this. They love God with their soul. They, they have a desire for God's word. And in their spirit, they're content with Christ. The next thing we do is love God with our mind. And the way we love God with our mind is it is going to influence every way that we think. All of our thoughts are going to start with God. Now, the unbeliever or the immature Christian is not going to start their thinking with God. And this is understandable for the immature Christian because oftentimes people um, come to Christ when they're older. And so they've had years or decades of unbelieving thought in their head that they have to get rid of. And so oftentimes it'll cloud their understanding of scripture and it'll cloud their understanding of how to think. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're warned about this. Starting in verse 18, he says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that way he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. And this is really the history of all world religions and all world philosophies. It is useless thinking. Because they all start with the concept that the one true God is not the one true God and they reason from there. What they're doing is they're trying to make sense of the world without that creator God that we worship. And so if we are Christians, if we are in Christ, oftentimes we're going to bring in this false thinking. I know some really, really intelligent Christians that are a little off in their theology because they started with philosophy and they've brought philosophy into their Christianity rather than letting Christianity in, uh, uh, influence their philosophy. And so there's some weird thinkings they have because they're sticking to philosophy over Christianity over theology. And so our thinking has to start with God because if he is the one who created all things, if he is the one that has the correct morality, then we have to reason from him to those other things. 
Proverbs chapter 9, verse 9 and 10 says this, Give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. If you want wisdom and knowledge, it starts with God. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If we don't start there, we're going down a foolish path. It has to start with God. And so that is the mark of the mature believer. It is starting with God and is reasoning from that point. And when you do that, when you think about everything through that lens, when you think about everything through scripture, you're going to reason well. And I think oftentimes uh, another thing immature believers is they think that Christianity only applies to a part of their life and not the whole of their life. And so when they think about things like the government, they think, well, government's separate from church, so I can't let my Christian thinking influence how I think about government. But that's not true. Even the way we think about government, God has ordinances for government. God tells us the best form of government. And so when we think about how the government should function, we need to think about it scripturally. God has told us how the family is to function. When we think about family, we have to think about it through the scriptures. How should the family function? When we think about marriage, we have to go through scripture first. If we want to honor God in our marriages, we think, how does marriage work scripturally? What has God said about marriage? And so in everything we do and everything we think about, it has to start with God. What has God said about this? What glorifies God? And so when you and I are going to take every thought captive for Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 10, starting at verse 5. It says, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. So even our thoughts are being disciplined. Even the way we think about thing, things is being disciplined. So our thoughts are obedient to Christ. Have you ever thought about that? That's not just your actions that need to be obedient. It's your thoughts as well. Your thinking is a way you love God. And if you're not thinking biblically, you're not loving God. And so we have to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. And the last is with all of our strength. Now the first three are a bit more theoretical with strength being the actual action put into it. When we love God with all of our strength, we're loving him first with all of our heart, soul, and mind. And then our strength is where we actually walk in obedience in the, in the real world. It's where we actually do what God has commanded to do. And so loving God with all of our strength is actually working out our faith. Proverbs chapter three, starting at verse six is this. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of your produce. So your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. My son, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. And so once again, acknowledging God in all of our ways. This is how we love God with all of our strength. In everything that we do, we acknowledge God. Um, and now I think some people can take a bit of a prosperity gospel approach to this passage. And I'll see when you acknowledge God in all your ways, everything's just going to be really fun and fine and you're going to enjoy life. Um, well, I would agree with the enjoy life part, but it doesn't mean everything's going to go well for you. And so we can think of Paul who acknowledged God in all his ways and his path was straight to martyrdom. Paul told us that he went through beatings and persecutions and, and uh, shipwrecks. He went through all these terrible things and, and ultimately lost his life. And the whole way he said he was 
content in all of that. He had joined the Lord. He was fulfilled, but it doesn't mean that he had all the best things in life. And so that was, that's what this passage is telling us. We're acknowledging God in all of our ways. And when we glorify God with our actions, God is going to glorify us. He's going to give us peace. He's going to give us joy, even in the trials, even in the tribulations. We're going to have that peace because we're acknowledging God in all of our ways. And so you and I are to love God first. Know who he is, love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that is going to build up your maturity as a Christian. But it doesn't just end there. Our maturity as a Christian, again, is to not just be mature ourselves, but to bring about the maturity of others. And so we can continue in in Mark chapter 12 at verse 31. He says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So you and I, as mature Christians, are not going to just mature ourselves. We're then going to think about the maturity of other people. Again, the Great Commission is not just to baptize, but to teach them to obey God's law. We're to disciple the nations. We're to disciple one another. And so loving our neighbor isn't just the physical aspect, and I think that's the immature approach. The immature approach is to think about the physical aspect of taking care of one another. And so... Um, you'll see more liberal churches kind of apply it this way. They, they'll do like the homeless ministries and other ministries, but they don't ever present the gospel and they don't ever train anyone up. It's just taking care of physical needs. And I think we've seen in the past year and a half or so, this passage applied incorrectly as well. Because when, when people told churches not to gather because you're loving your neighbor, they only thought about the physical well-being. They didn't think about the spiritual And God has commanded us to gather for our spiritual well-being. God has commanded us to gather to disciple one another. And that is why many churches defied government orders and gathered still, because we knew that there was a spiritual aspect to the well-being and loving of neighbor, not just a physical. And so you and I have to love our neighbors. Yes, physically, we take care of one another's needs. When needs come up, we take care of them. We don't ignore them. But there are physical and there are spiritual needs. And so we need to be discipling one another. We need to actually be looking at one another as people to train up and to build up. And what this means is that it is not just up to the elders to teach. It is not just up to the people that come up on stage. You don't have to, be, you don't have, to have the temperament to stand on a stage and speak to people to teach other people. Because by your maturity, bringing other people into your life and showing them your maturity, you can teach them by your actions. You can teach one-on-one. And Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 through 21 says this. It says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so this singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, this says memorizing scripture, knowing what God has said, delighting in his precepts, delighting in his law, and then teaching that to one another. So again, you don't have to give a sermon, but you can know what God has said and you can teach it to others. If you have kids, you can know what God has said and you can teach it to your kids. If you have grandkids, you can know what God has said and teach it to your grandkids. And if you're a mature Christian in the church, you can find someone who's immature in the church and you can train them up. That is our role. It is for each and every one of us. We are to subject, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We're to train up one another, taking care of both physical and spiritual needs. And this is because our God is a jealous God. He desires your worship. Exodus chapter 34, 
verse 14 says this, for you shall not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Now I think in modern culture, we have a misunderstanding of what it means to be jealous because most people think being jealous is a bad thing. But scripture actually talks about jealousy being a good thing. And so I think there's confusion in two ways. One, a lot of people take jealousy and they actually mean covetousness. So to covet something means it's not mine and I'd have a desire for it. So I'm coveting something that someone else has. Jealousy means that something belongs to me and I don't want to lose it. And so this is what God is saying, his, that he is jealous for our worship because our worship belongs to him. And so he does not want to lose our worship. And so the analogy he gives us is of Israel being a harlot. He says, when Israel goes out and they worship other gods, it's like a woman, uh, it's like a man being married to a woman who is a harlot and she goes out and sleeps with all the other men. And so in, in our society, again, we've kind of even painted jealousy within a marriage union as something that's not good. And we've seen this in TV and movies where the husband will be jealous for the wife because she's going off, uh, not doing necessarily doing anything wrong, but she's with other men. And so the husband comes jealous. And the lesson that they're telling us is, don't be jealous. She's her own person. She can go out and do whatever she wants. You should trust her not to cheat on you. But scripture says, no, the husband belongs to the wife and the wife belongs to the husband. Be jealous for your spouse. That is a good thing. We cannot listen to what the world says about jealousy. And so God is jealous for us, and this is a good thing. He desires your worship, and he desires my worship. And so you and I should be jealous on behalf of God for the worship of the saints. This is why we correct one another. If God is only jealous for my worship, then I don't have to worry about your guys' worship. But God is also jealous for your worship, so I have to be concerned with your worship. That's why we are to correct one another. That is why we're to build up one another, because God is owed our worship, and if we are in Christ, he deserves that worship. And so you should be jealous for the worship of God from other people, not for your benefit, but for the glorification of God. This is why we correct one another. This is why we train one another up. And this is why we should be seeking to be obedient and mature Christians all as one body. That is our one goal with one another, to worship the one true God, because he's owed our worship. And so just the same way you train up children who are immature to be mature, we need to train up one another who are immature as Christians to be mature Christians. We should not be left in our immaturity. And what this requires for us is it requires us to think generationally. We cannot just think about ourselves. We have to realize that there's another generation of Christians coming that need to be matured. There are people that are going to be alive hundreds or thousands of years from now who need to be matured. And so just as as the, the apostles trained up the next generation, so too do we need to train up the next generation. The apostles did not sit around lazily. They built churches. They built the culture. They brought people to Christ and they stayed around to train them up. So that way those people who were there, they appointed elders and they appointed leaders to then train up more believers. And that has been the way it's been going for hundreds and now thousands of years, generation after generation of Christians training up one another. But again, going back to eschatology without diving too deep into the topic, a lot of Christians take the, the viewpoint that since Christ is coming soon, there's nothing to prepare for in the next generation. And so what they've done, because there's been prophecy after prophecy for about 150 years that the end is within the next generation, they say, well, then there's not going to be a generation beyond us. So just bring people into the church, make them immature in their faith, but at least they'll have faith so they'll go to heaven. And they've, we've completely abandoned discipleship because of this. 
And so we cannot let our eschatological views, thinking that Christ is going to return, affect our the generational thinking. If he comes, so be it. If he doesn't come, then at least we're prepared for the next generation. And what's funny is that Scripture actually gives us parables about this, about who is ready for Christ's return. And so he talks about the, the men with the talents. The one who had five talents went out and made five more. The one with two talents went out and made two more. The one with one hid it and did nothing with it. And when the master returns, he doesn't say the two that made more talents that they did wrong. The one who did nothing with it is the one who did the wrong thing. But we have Christians have done that. We have not been discipling one another. And we are the one with the one talent not doing anything with it. We need to think generationally. Being ready for Christ's return means we're being obedient to him right now, thinking generationally, training up the next generation of Christians. Psalm 103, verse 17 through 19 says this, but the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. And so his loving kindness is for children's children. Do you think about the faith of your children's children? Or if you're already at that point, do you think about the faith of your children's 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 children? Because guess what? It's been 2,000 years since Christ first came. And there have been many, 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 many generations of Christians who had to live out this obedience, training up the next generation, building in maturity. And if we are not answering that call, we are not answering the fullness of the gospel. God wants you to be mature. There was a missionary in the 1800s. His name is David Livingston. And he was a missionary in South Africa. And so... Um, what David Livingston realized is that since no one really had any maps of Africa, it was really hard to get in there and preach the gospel to the people there. And so he went and he uh, abandoned his luxuries in England and he went to Africa and he explored Africa, creating maps and charts and preaching the gospel. And he saw little to no conversion. But he said this, he said, and although I see few results, future missionaries will see conversions following every sermon. May they not forget the pioneers who worked in the thick gloom with few rays to cheer, except such as follows, uh, such as flow from faith in the precious promises of God's word. And so what he realized was that even though his work was not showing much fruit, what he was doing was he was preparing for the next generation of missionaries. He said, I might not convert a lot of people, but I'm creating the maps and I'm creating the charts and I'm paving the way for the next generation. He was actually building something so that way Christianity could spread in the future. And that is the same mindset you and I need to take. We are here to disciple one another, to build up God's kingdom, whether he returns tomorrow or in 10,000 years. We have to live in obedience to that command. Train up Christians in the way that they should go. And this is because maturity produces fruit. We've talked about producing the fruit of the gospel. And you're not going to produce that fruit if you're an immature Christian. You're only going to produce it as a mature Christian. And so if you are immature, pursue maturity. If you are mature as a Christian, pursue training up others in maturity. And by this, we are not glorifying ourselves, but what we're doing is building up God's kingdom and we're bringing about his glory in our maturity. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the unity that we have in you, God, and and. I just ask that you would forgive the American church, God. 
For generations, we have not done what you have called us to do. For generations, we have abandoned raising up Christians because our faith is about more than simple belief. Our faith is about the obedience to your word, God, and we need to be obedient to it. This is why, God, we have seen the culture being overtaken by secular thought because Christians have abandoned the culture. Christians have abandoned discipleship. And we cannot do that, God. If we're going to be mature Christians, we need to love you first and we need to actually display the love of our neighbors and the discipleship of them. God, I pray that um, as many churches have been uh, kind of rediscovering this in this generation, God, that this would be one of those churches, that the people here would have a, a burning desire for your word, a burning desire for your precepts, a burning desire for your law, so that way we can go into this community and into the world preaching the gospel, discipling the nations, and bringing them into the obedience of your word, God. Because our faith is about our obedience. We thank you for the justification, and we thank you for the future glorification, and we pray, God, that we are sanctified here today. In your holy name we pray. Amen. that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.